Chapter Four, Part Three of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. A Guide to the Study of Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter Four, Part Three, The Study of the New Testament. 4. The Acquisition of the Language of the New Testament What has already been said respecting the nature of the interpretive process makes it at once evident that the interpreter must be acquainted with the language in which the literature which he is interpreting is written. Any language is a system of arbitrary symbols for ideas. There is no necessary, in the majority of cases there is not even a natural, relation between the subject described or the idea expressed by a word and that word itself. This, which is obviously true, is made more evident by the fact that there are literally thousands of human languages. In other words, men have created thousands of systems, each of which, differing from every other one, is used for the symbolizing of human thoughts. Not only so, but there are as many systems of expressing those differentiations of thought which are indicated by the inflections and syntactical relations of words as there are for the differences of thought expressed by different words. These facts make it necessary that the interpreter of any writer or speaker shall be acquainted with that particular system of symbols, that is, that particular language, in which the author whom he is interpreting writes or speaks. The man of but one language may be scarcely aware of this fact, but the German who desires to understand a Greek or the Frenchman who wishes to understand a Chinese, quickly discovers it. But it is not only the man who desires to interpret a different language from his own who is compelled to make a study of the language. There are 60,000 characters in the Chinese language, each of which represents a different idea. A fairly well-educated man knows but 2,000 of these. To acquire a knowledge of the other 58,000 is no small task. It is less obvious but equally true that no user of the English language knows all the meanings of all the words of that language, and that the English student of the English Bible does not therefore escape the necessity of being a diligent student of the language of the Bible. To learn Greek may be more difficult for him than to learn English. But when Greek has been once acquired, he may learn the ideas represented by the New Testament words more easily, and certainly more exactly, through the medium of the Greek than through that of the English but not all of the meaning of the word is conveyed by its stem or body. The terminations show whether it refers to one object or many, whether it denotes the person or thing of which the sentence affirms something, or one who is affected by the action spoken of in the predicate. These and many other varieties of relations between things spoken of are expressed by the inflections of words. Out of the double fact that ideas are expressed by words and that words themselves take on different forms to express certain variations of the idea for which they stand, arises the necessity for lexicography and grammar. A. Lexicography. This is the process by which one discovers and formulates the meanings of words, i.e., the idea or ideas for the expression of which a given word may be employed. Had each word but one meaning, and were therefore each idea a separate word, this process would be relatively simple, and might be compared to a mere table of equivalents of Roman and Arabic figures. 
In fact, however, in every language most words have various meanings, and many ideas can be expressed by different words. Furthermore, behind this variety of usage there lies in all cases a historical process, in some cases of centuries of extent. Words which have in one period a certain meaning have in a later period come to have a very different meaning. Sometimes the latter is almost the exact opposite of the former. The task of the lexicographer is therefore a strictly historical one. His task is to determine what meaning, or what various meanings, the writers of a given period were accustomed to express by the use of a given word. To discover this, it is often necessary not only to examine the extant literature which has come down to us from the period in question, but to trace the development of the usage through the previous periods in the history of the language. One can, for example, scarcely decide what the word Lord means in the New Testament without an extended investigation of its usage both by Hebrew and by Greek writers. And the same is true of many other words such as soul, spirit, holiness, repentance. b. Grammar. What the lexicographer does in relation to the body or stem of a word, the grammarian does in relation to the variations of meaning conveyed by the inflection of the word, and in general in respect to the relations of words in sentences. It is his task to arrange the various word forms in an orderly scheme and to determine what various shades of ideas are expressed by these variations. What the nominative case signifies, or the dative, what variation of idea is conveyed by the use of the present tense or the past, by the subjunctive mood or the optative, how sentences are built and what ideas are expressed by the structure of sentences, with all these and like questions, the grammarian deals. It is obvious on the one hand that all these are, like those of the lexicographer, purely questions of history pertaining to the habits of men in respect to the use of words in a given period, and, on the other, that the answers to them are indispensable to the process of interpretation. 5. The Recovery of the Text a. What is textual criticism? To understand what a man has said, it is essential to know what he said. If a precise understanding of the meaning is wanted, or if he has dealt with matters of importance, it is desirable to know exactly what he said. If he wrote his words instead of merely speaking them, we can reach certainty as to what he wrote by consulting his autograph manuscript, as in the case of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. In the case of ancient writers whose original manuscripts, autograph or dictated, have been lost, we must depend upon copies made from them or secondary copies made from those in turn or from copies even further removed from the originals. But it is very difficult to copy even a few pages with absolute accuracy, and different copies of ancient works naturally differ from one another in many particulars. Which is right? Probably no one of them is entirely so one may preserve some particulars correctly, another others. Comparison and scrutiny are necessary to decide which copy is probably closer to the original at points in which the copies disagree. This is textual criticism. In some cases, an ancient work has come down to us in a single copy made long after the original work was written. It is evident that it matters very little how many years have passed between the writing of the original work and the making of this particular copy, but very much how many copies have intervened, for with every copying of the text a new opportunity is given for errors to creep in. 
when an ancient work has been preserved in but a single copy the effort to recover the precise text of the lost original must take the form of conjecture that is wherever the text is not smooth or consistent or does not yield an intelligible sense the scholar who is trying to recover the original text must try to guess what the writer actually wrote from what his copyists have represented him as writing more can often be done in this direction than might seem probable but at best this method is dangerous even in the ablest hands and should always be used sparingly and with caution b the problem of the new testament text but the new testament is preserved not in one manuscript only or a few but in hundreds and even thousands in a greater number indeed than any other work of literature few of these contain all the new testament it was usual to copy the gospels together the epistles of paul together and so on but not only are there hundreds of such manuscripts of the original greek text but in the early centuries the new testament was translated into latin syriac coptic arabic armenian ethiopic persian gothic and other languages and the manuscripts of some of these variations are very numerous the textual materials for new testament study are in fact so abundant as to be really overwhelming anyone who undertakes to study the new testament seriously in english finds it presented to him in different textual forms the authorized version differs materially from the revised version of eighteen eighty one and that in turn often reads differently from the american revision there are besides numerous lesser translations which is right the authorized version of sixteen eleven like the series of english versions that had preceded it beginning with fifteen twenty five was based on the early printed editions in fifteen fourteen the greek new testament was first printed at alcala in spain but before it was published erasmus in fifteen sixteen issued his edition and many editions followed these for all of these the text was drawn from late manuscripts of the tenth to the fifteenth centuries which differed relatively little from one another but in the years that followed manuscripts of much greater age and of a very different textual quality came one by one to light in fifteen eighty one theodore de bise gave to the university of cambridge his famous manuscript called after him the codex bise in sixteen twenty eight the patriarch of constantinople gave to the king of england the codex alexandrinus new studies revealed the worth of the ancient codex vaticanus the paris codex of ephraim was deciphered and tischendorf discovered at mount sinai the codex sinaiticus both vaticanus and sinaiticus date from the fourth century and they are generally considered our best new testament manuscripts the more ancient versions first printed in the sixteenth and the seventeenth centuries in the nineteenth began to be critically examined and the materials for the study of the new testament text were thus greatly increased c better textual materials this growing mass of materials led to improved methods of investigation scholars had at first been content to reprint the prevailing sixteenth century text the received text as it was called and to put any valuable variants from it which the study of freshly discovered manuscripts yielded into footnotes but the really superior readings at length became so numerous that the true text was often to be found in the margin instead of in the column above the editors of the greek text had therefore to revise the received text they did this at first modestly and sparingly 
but at length grew bolder and broke away from it altogether, basing their text no longer on the received text, but wholly upon the ancient manuscripts, from the fourth to the tenth centuries, which had come to light. It was the development of this critical ancient text, differing widely from that on which the authorized version had been based, that necessitated the revision of 1881. d. Types of New Testament Text Yet these ancient manuscripts did not agree among themselves. Some of them exhibited the same kind of text that we find in the sermons of John Chrysostom at the end of the fourth century. Quotations such as he and other Christian fathers make from the New Testament are in fact among the most important aids to the study of the history of the text, because we can fix their dates and places of abode as we cannot those of most manuscripts. It was this text of Chrysostom's, which he had probably learned in Antioch, which prevailed in the Middle Ages and came down to modern times as the received text. Other early manuscripts, like the Codex Bezi and parts of the Freer and Cordethi Gospels, show a very different text, with additions, omissions, and occasional substitutions, sometimes of a very striking character. This erratic text has often the support of very early Christian writers, who seem to quote the New Testament in this form. Other manuscripts again preserve a text less picturesque than this, and at many points less full and smooth than that of Chrysostom. Some would distinguish a fourth type of text, differing from this last only in its greater smoothness and finish. How did these textual types come into existence? What are their relations to one another? Which of them is nearest to the original text? And how can the original text be reached through them? These are the questions which textual study seeks to answer. e. Method of Textual Criticism In doing this, it is helpful to remember that changes made in copying are not all involuntary. They are often intentional. We do not understand what lies before us to be copied, and so we naturally alter it to make sense. This alteration may possibly restore the original text where an earlier scribe had corrupted it, but it is quite as likely to corrupt the text or make a previous corruption worse. With all three forms of such a passage before us, it would not be difficult to discover which was the original and which the secondary reading. By this comparison of rival readings, we can in fact often determine which is the parent reading. Some manuscripts prove upon examination to contain a large proportion of such readings, and we conclude that they represent a comparatively pure text. We infer that in other readings less demonstrably original, they are probably right. When such a manuscript is found to agree in numerous particulars with another manuscript, which has on similar grounds established its claims to accuracy, the group thus formed carries great weight. If others can be added to the group, their testimony is further strengthened. In such ways, by the comparison of series of rival readings, by the discovery of superior readings throughout a manuscript, by the study of groups of kindred manuscripts, and by distinguishing parent manuscripts from their descendants, something like certainty in textual study can be attained. 6. The Interpretation of the Books of the New Testament With the book in a corrected text before him, with a knowledge of the language in which it is written, with an intelligent understanding of the life of the period in which it was written, and a specific knowledge of the occasion which called forth the book, and the purpose which it was intended to achieve, the student is prepared to undertake the detailed interpretation of the book itself. This involves, as already pointed out, 
the discovery with the utmost possible accuracy of the precise state of mind of the author of which the book is a reflection. The interpretive process may be divided into two parts, grammatical interpretation and logical interpretation. The term grammatical, as here used, does not mean pertaining to grammar, but has a meaning derived directly from the Greek word gramma, pertaining to that which is written. Similarly, the term logical, as here used, has no direct reference to logic, but derives its meaning from the Greek word logos, in the sense of discourse. Grammatical interpretation deals with the separate expressed elements that compose the complex discourse, and aims at the reproduction of the author's thoughts, insofar as that thought was embodied in the separate terms as such, and in their grammatical relations. Logical interpretation deals with the thought of the writer in its continuity as discourse. A. Grammatical Interpretation This part of the interpretive process falls into two parts, according as it has to do with the meaning of words or with their relation in the sentence, with questions of lexicography or of grammar. On its lexicographical side, again it falls into two parts, according as it seeks to ascertain the general usages of a word or its particular meaning in the passage at hand. Inasmuch as the meaning possible to a term in any given passage must be one of the meanings which were current for that word in that period in which the passage was written, it is evident, on the one hand, that the discovery of possible, that is, of current, meanings, must precede the assignment of a meaning to a given instance of the term, and on the other hand that the possible meanings must be determined by a historical investigation. The latter is the process which we have already described as the task of the lexicographer. Its results are embodied in lexicons and dictionaries. The task of discovering which of the several meanings of a word historically established to be current, the word bears in a given passage, belongs to the interpreter as such. Only in the case that a word has but one meaning in the period in which the passage under consideration was written do the two processes merge in one. It is obvious that the same principles hold in the realm of grammatical relations, grammatical interpretation in the narrower sense of the term, as in that of meanings of words. The grammarian must first determine the possible usages of a given form, and then the interpreter as such must decide which of the relationships listed in the grammar corresponds to the writer's thought in the passage under consideration. Thus, for example, before one can decide in which of the various forces of an aorist indicative a particular aorist indicative is used, he must know in what various ways verbs in the aorist indicative were used in the period in which the New Testament books were written. One ordinarily turns for information of this kind, as concerns meanings of words, to a lexicon, and as pertains to meanings of forms and syntactical relations to a grammar. This is not because of any divine right of lexicons and grammars. Any student who has the ability, time, and patience may be his own lexicographer and grammarian. But unless he is prepared to give himself to the laborious historical study on which lexicons and grammars are based, he must rely upon the scholars who have done this work for him. But he must also be on his guard to take into account those meanings of words and those usages of form which were current in the period from which the literature that he is studying came, and only those. Because Liddell and Scott assigned to a word a given meaning, citing for it an example in Homer. It does not follow that it could have been so used by Paul. 
nor does the non-occurrence in Plato or his contemporaries of a certain usage of the subjunctive exclude the possibility of its occurrence in the New Testament. But if in the first part of the process of grammatical interpretation, viz., the enumeration of possible meanings and possible relations, the student is naturally dependent on the lexicon and grammar, in the second part, the selection of the actual meaning and the actual relation, he must, if he will be a real interpreter, assume a more independent position. The lexicons, for example, and of course the commentaries, frequently express an opinion as to the meaning of a word in a given passage. But such opinion is only incidental to the proper task of the lexicon, and is of necessity subject to more doubt than the verdict of the lexicon as to possible meanings. The lexicographer's opinion in his own proper field, the possible meanings of a word, is, or should be, based upon a broad induction and the study of many instances, and the probability that it is correct is much greater than that he is right in his interpretation of each individual passage. Appeal on the latter point may therefore properly be taken by the interpreter to evidence itself. This evidence is to be found in the context, either the immediate context, which is often decisive by excluding all meanings but one, or the broader context, which, by disclosing the general trend of the writer's thought, guides one to the meaning which he has in mind for the term under examination. Further help may be obtained from parallel passages, this term being taken in its broader sense as referring to other passages in which the same writer has dealt with the same or similar subjects. To the meaning of a word it is often necessary to add, for purposes of interpretation, its reference. Many nouns and even verbs are to this extent like pronouns. They have reference to persons, things, or acts which are identified, not by the meaning of the term, but by the context. Such identification is as necessary to the recovery of the writer's thought as it is to the discovery of his meaning. Thus, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, For that all sinned. The problem of interpretation is not only to define the word sinned and the force of its tense, but, even more important, to determine what event or series of events is referred to. It is also necessary in many cases to discover what associated ideas were conveyed by words in addition to what may be strictly called their meaning. Thus the words publican, Pharisee, Sadducee in the New Testament had each their own associated ideas, and these ideas were as much a part of the writer's thought in the use of the words as the lexicographical definition. Another analogous to the process by which one ascertains the meaning of a word in a given passage is that by which the grammatical relations of terms are determined. The grammarian lists the possible usages. The interpreter must discover, by the study of the context and other like methods, which of the particular usages is in the writer's mind in the particular passage. Often the grammarian will incidentally, by citing a given passage as an illustration of a given usage, express an opinion as to the use of the form in that passage. But such opinions are, like the similar verdicts of the lexicographer, only opinions, not authoritative assertions, and to the interpreter as such belongs the decision. b. Logical Interpretation It might seem as if, with these tasks accomplished, viz., from the possible meanings of the various terms the actual ones selected, and from among their possible relationships, their actual relations determined, the interpreter's task would be fully accomplished. But such is far from being the case. 
to content oneself with these results important essential and difficult of achievement as they often are would often be to fall far short of grasping the writer's thought of representing to one's own mind the whole of that state of mind of the author of which the language to be interpreted was the expression a story an essay a poem a parable a sermon is a unity not a collection of disjecta membra nor can all the relations of part to part be reduced to grammatical statement it represents a continuous current of thought imperfectly represented by the words that suggest it and therefore imperfectly interpreted by definitions of words and naming of grammatical relationships by means of language souls come into communion the ultimate purpose of interpretation it has well been said is the communion of souls but the communion of souls requires both expression and interpretation and the thought which by means of language expressed and interpreted passes from soul to soul is often conveyed far more by what it suggests than by what it definitely expresses hence arises the necessity that to the process of grammatical interpretation which deals with what is expressed in words there should be added a process of logical interpretation which shall seek to reproduce the current of thought in its continuity the body of thought in its unity more specifically stated the necessity for logical interpretation arises from two facts respecting the character of human language first no language save possibly that of mathematical formulae and logical definitions expresses in words all the thought which it is intended to produce and actually does produce in the hearer's mind the language leaves gaps to be filled by suggestion secondly one train of thought is frequently employed to suggest another the latter in itself wholly different from the former but so related to it that the utterance of the former begets the latter also in other words all men talk more or less in figures of speech corresponding to these two facts are two great divisions of logical interpretation the interpretation of literal language and the interpretation of figurative language the two having this in common that they both deal with the reproduction of thought not actually expressed in the written or spoken word and differing in this that the former has to do with filling the gaps between words the latter with discovering in the line of thought conveyed by the words in their literal and usual sense a parallel line which it is the writer's intention to suggest the methods of logical interpretation applied to literal language are by the very nature of the process itself susceptible of much less exact definition than those of grammatical interpretation it must suffice here to lay down a few general principles one logical interpretation must presuppose and be preceded by grammatical interpretation links of connection between expressed elements of thought can be supplied intelligently only when the expressed elements are themselves correctly apprehended two the omitted elements of thought which logical interpretation must supply in order to recover the continuous current of thought may vary all the way from a more exact definition of relationship between terms than can be determined grammatically to a whole sentence expressing a fact taken for granted in discussion and necessary to continuity of thought but left unstated because already present to the mind of the speaker and hearer three the element of thought to be supplied must always be something contained in the mental possessions of the speaker or writer and believed by him to be in possession of those to whom he speaks or writes 
the writer can leave to be supplied only what he knows and assumes that his reader knows the process of logical interpretation demands therefore an acquaintance as full as possible with the ideas common to the writer and originally intended reader these are of course largely the ideas current in their age and environment it is just at this point that new testament interpretation is making greatest progress today in the recovery of the thought and life of the age in which christianity was born four the element to be supplied must be so connected with what is expressed that the latter may be expected to suggest the former the writer cannot assume that his reader will think of things in no way associated with what he puts into words five from material reasonably believed to be the common property of the writer and the originally intended reader and germane to the subject in hand the exegetical imagination must construct hypothetical bridges to cover the gaps left between the expressed elements six such hypothetical bridges must be rigidly tested to see whether the suggestion gives continuity and logical consistency to the discourse and whether the resulting course of thought is of such character that it can be reasonably attributed to the writer that connection which best stands these tests may then be accepted as most probably representing the thoughts as it lay in the mind of the writer but if the formulation of the rules or principles applicable to the interpretation of literal language is difficult and necessarily inadequate much more is this the case in respect of figurative language no attempt can be made here to classify the various types and forms of figurative language or to formulate the specific principles of interpretation that apply to metaphors parables and allegories it must suffice to reiterate two general principles first interpretation aims to reproduce the writer's thought not some other meaning which may be supposed in some more or less arbitrary way to belong to the words secondly it is a characteristic of human language generally that habitually conveying more thought than it actually expresses it often does this through the medium of a course of thought wholly distinct from that which is directly expressed though parallel to it through an induced current so to speak the task of the interpreter therefore is by no means limited to finding out the meanings of words however necessary this may be as a part of his task but requires him to reproduce the state of mind of his author and to pass through or more exactly to perceive the mental experience which the words of the author were intended to generate in other words the interpreter must neither include in his result things which the author's language suggests to his mind but which the author did not have in mind nor by limiting himself to merely lexicographical and grammatical processes exclude any thought which the author intended to generate the whole process of interpretation is therefore reproductive only when the interpreter as he reads lives through the mental experience which it was the purpose of the poem the sermon or the story to produce only when he perceives in its entirety what the author saw before his vision as he wrote and intended his reader to see as he heard or read has he achieved his purpose as an interpreter successful interpretation always reproductive is as applied to ancient writings a process of resurrection and recreation c application of the process of interpretation to the new testament books it is to such a process as this that it is the task of the new testament interpreter to subject all the literature from which he can derive material 
for the reconstruction of the early history of Christianity. Preeminent among this literature for his purpose are the books of the New Testament. Each of these represented a certain mental process and possession in the writer's mind, which it was his purpose to reproduce in his hearer's mind. By its every word and construction it conveys some elements of that mental process. But its total thought is more than the meanings of words and the significance of construction. In its onward movement it is comparable to a stream, which one sees through a series of windows. Not all of it is visible to the eyes, but reproducible in its continuity by the mind, which, from that which is visible, reproduces the whole. In its totality it is comparable to a building, of which one gains knowledge by observation of its several parts and constituents, but whose beauty and whose meaning as a representation of the architect's idea are something far more than the added-up result of one's observation of its parts. The task of the interpreter calls for careful study of words and constructions, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, for careful tracing out of the course of thought in its continuity, and for the reproduction of that mental picture which lay before the writer's mind when he had finished a book, if not also in a measure before he began it. d. Use of the original or of translation in interpretation. As already indicated, the work of interpretation is obviously best performed on the basis of the original text of the books, since only on this basis can the interpreter study the actual words and constructions by which the author expressed his thought. Yet much can be done on the basis of a good translation, it being, as a rule, only the finer shades of meaning that are missed by the student of an English translation. The greatest lack of such a student is an English dictionary of the words of the New Testament. With this supplied, as it is to be hoped it will be some day, his handicap as compared with the Greek student will be greatly reduced. Such as it is, it should be overcome as far as possible by a diligent effort to reproduce the atmosphere in which the book was produced, and by repeated attentive reading of the book in the consciousness of that atmosphere. By these means the student of the English translation may arrive at a good understanding of the great ideas of his author, and the total significance of his book, which will be of greater value than that which the student of the Greek achieves by minute study, if he neglect the larger matters of contemporary thought, general purpose, and sweep of thought. End of chapter 4, part 3